MSW Media. Yesterday evening, Special Counsel Robert Mueller submitted his report to Attorney General Bill Barr, indicating that the Mueller investigation has come to an end. This news raises many important questions. How much of the report will be seen by the public? What does this mean for the other investigations of Trump and his associates? And what about all the loose ends from Mueller's investigations that still haven't been tied up? This news raises a lot of interesting questions. So let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name is Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a CNN legal analyst. I'm usually joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, but she's off today, so I've got a great lineup of guests here to talk about this big news. I can think of really no one better to talk about this with than my friend Natasha Bertrand. Natasha is a reporter for The Atlantic. She is a contributor for NBC News and MSNBC. Welcome back to the podcast, Natasha. Thanks for joining us again. Thanks for having me. So I've got to say, both you and I have been following the Mueller investigation for years now. Uh, sir, I've always read your very intelligent commentary. And, you know, now that the Mueller investigation has come to an end, it really, to me, raises more questions than it answers at this point. Uh, obviously, we don't know exactly what's in his report. And you wrote a great piece in, in, in uh, The Atlantic uh, recently detailing a number of the questions you had. And I was hoping you could walk through some of those with us. And I'll try to clear up some uh, to the extent that I can, and others I will be asking people about throughout the podcast today. Yeah, definitely. So I think, you know, one of the biggest um, remaining questions is just how much Bob Mueller is actually going to write a narrative of the, you know, the investigation, the 22-month investigation, or how he's going to, or whether he's just going to write a rationale for why he decided to prosecute certain people and why he declined to prosecute others. Um, is this going to be a fulsome kind of uh, fulsome report that, that goes into, you know, things that might not be criminal activity, but that the public should know about perhaps like, you know, whether or not certain members of the campaign were compromised by Russia, whether the president himself is compromised by Russia, um, or are we going to get something a lot thinner that really just, you know, gives us a broad picture of the things that he was investigating and who he decided to charge. Um, but within the kind of, you know, narrower scope of his investigation into whether there was a conspiracy between the campaign and Russia, there are still a lot of questions that I have. Um, one of the big ones is, you know, the Roger Stone connection to WikiLeaks and Roger Stone's communications with the campaign about WikiLeaks. Um, you know, did they coordinate in October of 2016 to release the damaging emails to Podesta at the same time that the Access Hollywood tape 
um, was was dropped, which was very damaging to the president. I mean, that's one huge question that maybe we'll find out at trial for Roger Stone in November. But are we going to learn anything about, you know, what, what the coordination was like there in the actual Mueller report? Um, you know, what about that Russia-linked professor who told the campaign about the emails that Russia had in early 2016? Um, where is he? What's his story? Are we going to find out anything about that? Um, and what about the internal campaign polling data that Manafort gave to Konstantin Kalimnik in August of 2016? Why did he do that? What was that for and who did it go to? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and while we're on the subject of Manafort, I mean, did he actually give those briefings to that Russian oligarch that he offered in early 2016 um, about the campaign? I mean, everything having to do with Jared Kushner and his meetings, um, that so-called peace plan, why the administration was trying to lift sanctions early on in the administration. I mean, there are so many questions here. Yeah. And I'm just not convinced that in this report, we're going to get an answer to all of them. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I will say, let's just kind of tackle some of them. I've been taking notes because, and I, I have the feeling that I could literally just leave the mic open and you could have ask questions for an hour yeah. uh, of unanswered yeah, questions. Right. And it's interesting to me. I will say some of your questions were different than mine. Uh, unanswered questions, which is part of what's interesting and in, about your perspective as somebody as a reporter who has uh, very carefully, uh, you know, pay, you know, followed this story and reported on this uh, this uh, investigation. So I will say, you know, one clue uh, that I do think we we have as to whether or not the Mueller report will be more extensive is contained in the letter that. Uh, Attorney General Barr wrote to the the uh, the chairman and ranking members of the uh, House and Senate Judiciary Committees. So like you, I have uh, you know noted that we don't know exactly how extensive the report will be. I've talked about that a lot in the past because I think people assume that there'd be a very extensive report. Um, but there's nothing in the regulations that says Mueller has to do that. And I think that's just an assumption that people have had. But if you look in the letter, he he says something that gave me a little clue. He says that, you know, he, OK, he says that the special counsel submitted the, the report. He quotes the, the regulation saying that the report's been submitted. He says he's reviewing it. He, he anticipates he'll be in a position to advise us of his principal conclusions as soon as this weekend. Then he says... He's going to consult with Rosenstein and Mueller to determine what other information can be released to the Congress and public consistent with the law. And then, um, you know, to me, um, what what I what I read of that is that um, there's some things beyond, you know, what we know. There's something beyond the the beer, the mere nuts and bolts. Now, it could be that. There is, um, uh, you know, essentially just his reasoning. I mean, if you're looking at a nuts and bolts uh, report, then what it would be is, you know, here's the I indicted Manafort for this reason. I didn't indict Corsi for that reason. And then, you know, it would be that would be short. It seems like there's a little more information there, um, you know, given what Barr said, but maybe not. I mean, that we're reading a little bit between the lines here. Right. So, yeah, so that that bit about there being, you know, the the necessity of additional conversations about what can and can't be made public is definitely interesting. And it it does it does make me wonder whether that means that some 
you know, in, you know, counterintelligence portions of this could be eventually revealed to things that may not be, you know, exclusively um, related to criminal activity, um, but could have to do with, you know, like I said before, compromise or things like that, maybe obstruction of justice um, mm -hmm. that they decided not to charge and that they couldn't charge because, you know, sitting president can't be charged by DOJ. Um, so, so yeah, it's definitely possible. I just, you know, I, I just don't, I just don't know why. I think one of my biggest questions also is why Mueller, with all of these threads kind of hanging out there and all these unanswered questions, decided to close this case in the first place. Yeah, you ask great questions, which is why I always love uh, being interviewed by you. So let's let's start with the last one and work to some of these other ones. So the last question I think is really interesting, and I'm I don't have an, a definitive answer for everyone, but I think he, I want to give some, everyone some context to help them understand the issue. So Mueller has investigated a whole variety of different things. It's actually a, um, a, a, a kind of a series of related investigations, and they've resulted in charges against people. And some of those charges, as you point out, Natasha, are going to result in trials and there's going to be sentencings and so forth. And then there's all sorts of related uh, things that are happening, cooperation by, let's say, Rick Gates and others. There is, mm -hmm. uh, you know, some subpoenas that have gone out there that there's been fights over. And what Mueller has decided to do is even though there are some of these, you know, loose ends that are still out there, he's kind of closing up the uh, special counsel uh, office and that investigation. And he is, you know, farming a lot of that stuff out to other Justice Department lawyers. Now, you may say, well, why is he doing that? Why not just keep everything open until he's done with every last thread? Well, you know, that might mean being around, you know, waiting around for years. Um, without releasing a report and really just, you know, he might be supervising a few prosecutors who are tying up loose ends at that point. Um, I will say that, you know, in my former life as a federal prosecutor, I would have cases that would drag on for many years, often because of just some small piece or some small issue or some spinoff, some additional person that we uh, learned about along the way and we separately charged. So, these things, you know, can take on a life of their own and, and last for many years. And he may have thought it was in the country's best interest uh, to kind of draw a line now and let the Justice Department deal with the rest. And one thing that I don't think we'll ever know or, you know, maybe he will tell us uh, in a testimony before Congress is, you know, whether or not pressure from the White House or pressure from, you know, how he saw the public perception of his investigation you know, did that play into any of uh, of his decision to close th this up now versus in six months or a year or two years from now? Right. And one of the biggest questions also is why he never actually sat down with the president and interviewed him face to face, because according to that bar letter, Mueller did not ask for anything that he did not get. And so one theory that a lot of former FBI agents that I spoke to um, about Mueller not getting that sit-down interview was that he had asked the Justice Department permission to subpoena the president because otherwise he wouldn't have been able to convince Trump to do it voluntarily. And the Justice Department turned him down. But now that Barr has said that they did not reject any requests from Mueller, that kind of indicates that Mueller didn't ask for the subpoena. He certainly didn't carry it out. So so why wasn't that step taken? Is it because he thought that the president would just plead the fifth anyway? And that would set up a more protracted fight? Or is it because he felt like the written answers were enough? 
Um, you know, a lot of people I speak to are skeptical about that because they say, look, to get to the bottom of the motive here, the obstruction of justice questions, you would need that face-to-face interview. Um, you know, to, to get the president on the record talking about these things and maybe backtracking and maybe hesitating and lying um, would be valuable in this kind of investigation. You know, Bill Clinton was in, was interviewed. Um, uh, Hillary Clinton was interviewed. It just seems very weird that the main subject of this probe was not interviewed. I mean, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I'm I'm shocked by that. Uh, and, and here's yeah. where I go with it. So, I mean, just looking at the public information, I can't reach any conclusions about some of these things about collusion, Russia. Uh, you know, I don't know, uh, based on what's publicly, whether there'd be anything chargeable there. But obstruction of justice, there's a lot of evidence in the public record that raised serious issues there. And from in my mind, would lead me to believe that you could charge uh, Trump if he was able to be charged as president with that. At the very least, I mean, reasonable minds could differ there, but certainly there are very serious questions. There's very much a reason to investigate there. And the the state of mind of Trump as to obstruction of justice would obviously be very relevant, right? You'd have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt his intent, so you'd want to know what he has to say one way or the other. So why uh, would you not seek an interview? If this was an ordinary case, I always would. And so that I don't understand. Um, I also, you know, as to some of this other stuff, whether it's, um, you know, Trump Jr. Uh, or or Kushner, let's say Trump Jr. lying to Congress or Kushner with his disclosure forms, why there wasn't an interview in those circumstances. You know, possibly there was a discussion and counsel indicated that they would take the fifth. And if that in generally as a federal prosecutor, if somebody said in writing, if their attorney said in writing that they would take the fifth, we would not call them just to take the fifth. So it could be that. But if that never happened, if the request was never made and that, that was never indicated, I wouldn't understand why that wouldn't be the case. And so, um, you know, that remains unanswered. That would be near the top of my questions. And then yet another question is why they brought or gave a draft indictment to Jeremy Corsi, Jerome Corsi, Dr. Jerome Corsi, and then never actually followed through on the indictment. Um, If you'll remember last year, they said that they were going to indict um, him for lying to federal investigators about his communications with WikiLeaks and Roger Stone. And and Dr. Corsi actually like went out there and he was showing reporters the draft indictment and said, look, they've said that if I don't cooperate, they're going to bring this against me. But then this case is closed, it seems, without any kind of indictment against Corsi. And now he's out there gloating, saying that he's vindicated because it was all a bluff by the Mueller team. So my question is, you know, how does the prosecutor keep keep that trust in you know people that they might deal with in the future when they fail to bring an indictment that they threatened against someone you know it just kind of seems like they would have a reputation for bluffing yeah i have to say um that's a great question and it's a question that will we don't have at this time a solid answer on either what i would say is if this was an ordered uh, a typical office let's say the Southern District of New York or my old office in the Northern District of Illinois, like the New York or Chicago uh, federal prosecutor's offices, this would be a shocking development because, as you point out, there's a reputational issue here. When those offices, I know in my former office, if we told someone, we are going to indict you, we're sending you this letter or we're sending you a draft indictment or draft plea agreement or whatever it is, telling them we are going to indict you, 
That meant we were committed to doing it. We knew we had the evidence. We were we had made the decision to indict. And the reason that we're showing them that is either to get them to flip or because we want to get them to get an attorney so that we can start dealing with that attorney for some reason. There would be a reason why we were doing it, but there was no question that we were going to um, go forward. Now, is it always possible that new evidence would emerge that would uh, create an issue there? And, you know, we, we now learn that there's, uh, an, you know, maybe that person isn't guilty or there's a litigation risk. Sure. I'm not saying that it wouldn't happen, but it would be very rare because that anything like that would happen because the the office would be very careful about not uh, putting itself out there unless it was ready to indict and had all the evidence and knew that they could prove the guilt, the person's guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, one difference here is that is that Mueller's office is not going to last forever. In fact, it is now going away, and perhaps they don't have the same reputational concerns that federal prosecutors do, and are more were more interested in you know in that case seeing what would happen if they could try to get Corsi to flip. And once Corsi decided not to flip, they decided it wasn't worth the resources to pursue. That's possible. Another possibility, of course, is that the southern, the uh, excuse me, the District of Columbia U.S. Attorney's Office was is going to indict Corsi. They just haven't gotten around to it yet for whatever reason. I guess another possibility is that the evidence changed in some way or some other circumstance changed that made Corsi less attractive. Right, right, and that's. I mean, the, the only thing I would say about the reputational thing is that, I mean, the prosecutors on Mueller's team are going to have a life after Mueller, right? I mean, presumably, um, they're not closing up shop. They're going back to private practice or DOJ or whatever they're doing, um, and, and they'll have to deal with the effects of this. So I just don't – I mean, it, it just doesn't mm-hmm. – really add up to me unless yes like you said something changed um but i guess now the big question that everyone wants answered is not necessarily just what happened in 2016 but also what's happening now right so is the president currently compromised because this is there's really what everyone's dying for is like an explanation of of trump's behavior i mean what how can we possibly explain the extent to which he's so deferential to vladimir putin and how much of that deference has to do with his financial entanglements and his desire to do business there in 2016 and beyond? Um, and is Mueller going to delve into that at all? Because it is this complicated kind of financial question that Trump has said is a red line. Um, or is that going to be left to Congress, you know, to investigate his ties to Deutsche Bank and perhaps the Southern District of New York, which may, you know, also kind of get into those financial um, entanglements as it investigates his organization. Um, but but that, I think, is, is the big, you know, red flag that's been waving around for the last, you know, three or four years is why the president has been so um, able and willing to criticize literally everyone. <laughs> except for Vladimir Putin. It is interesting. A lot of questions raised about Trump's behavior. And what I would say is, you know, that there's a whole counterintelligence piece to this. And I think a big part of our discussion today, Natasha, will be on the podcast. What is the kind of the criminal piece of this? And what are the issues raised by that? What is the counterintelligence piece? And what are the issues raised there? What I what I see is that the count, you know, making the counterintelligence findings available to the public will perhaps be uh, the most challenging part of dealing with the aftermath of the Mueller report. 
So, Ash, or Natasha, thank you so much for, for being on the podcast. You've teed up, I think, all of the questions that I am going to be asking the entire rest of the way to all of our guests. Uh, and you are the best at asking questions uh, and, you know, identifying the issues related to this investigation. I can't thank you enough for joining us. Thank you so much, Renato. Happy to be here. Thank you. So now let's bring in Jennifer Rogers. She is a former federal prosecutor at the, in, in the United States Attorney's Office at the Southern District of New York, which you've all heard a lot about. She's also a CNN legal analyst and I think one of the smartest and more thoughtful people out there. So thank you, uh, Jennifer, for joining us today. I appreciate it. No problem. Thanks for the nice intro. <laughs> well, we have got a lot of questions for you, not only from all of our listeners, uh, but uh, Natasha Patron was just on and posed a lot of questions. And let me just start with a question that Scott Dworkin had submitted, which is, you know, is Mueller still investigating anything or is is this mean he's done? I think he's done. I mean, the special counsel regs say that at the conclusion of the work, they provide the final report, and that's what's happened. So I think it's fair to say that, that his shop is closed and that the, you know, there are some things, of course, that are going to continue on with other prosecutors, but uh, not this team. Uh, that I agree with you. I think that's exactly right. And, and so one of the big questions that he and others have been asking, and I, and I want to I ask the questions that are on people's mind is, there was this, this statement that went out about how no further indictments would be uh, forthcoming from the Mueller investigation. And I think that was issued by a senior uh, DOJ official to bring some clarity and, and answer questions. But it raised this question amongst a lot of folks on the Internet. You know, does that mean that there's already been sealed indictments uh, out there that are just sitting there and waiting to be released? Do you have any thoughts about that? I would be surprised if that were the case. I mean, you know, as you know, there are a few reasons that you can seal indictments. Um, one is, of course, if your subject hasn't been arrested uh, because you're keeping the investigation covert for some reason or, you know, your person can't be found or something like that. Um, juvenile indictments get sealed and, of course, cooperating witnesses. But I really can't think of a reason at this point that you would have a legitimate reason to keep an indictment under seal. Um, I don't know if you have contrary thoughts. So, so my best guess is that there are no sealed indictments out there. I mean, unless, again, it would be of someone, you know, uh, it could be someone out of the country or something like a, a Russian national, something like that, who uh, has been indicted. But, but none of the folks, I think, that we are thinking about here in the U.S., yeah, I think that's very much on point, Jennifer. I think that's right. I agree with you. You know, I like to be very careful and grounded on this podcast. And um, what I would say is we don't know for sure, and I think you're right to qualify it. We don't. You and I don't know what's sealed. And I think the reason that the DOJ person did not answer the question about sealed indictments is because I don't, you know, there may be something that's out there that's sealed that you generally, you can't talk about what's sealed or unsealed. But as a practical matter, I would be very surprised if there is a rash of sealed indictments uh, that is coming out in the in the uh, you know days or weeks to come. Similarly, there's been you know some speculation about like well, what is in the hands of state prosecutors? You know, from my perspective, state prosecutors are conducting their own investigations and certainly have gathered material. And I and there are provisions uh, uh, under the Justice Manual for. Uh, grand jury material to be given to state prosecutors, but I don't. I, I don't think that we should uh, be acting under presumption that that Mueller's team, for example, declined to act 
uh, on certain uh, crimes that they saw because they were going to instead hand that off to state prosecutors. Is that fair? I, I agree 100 percent. I mean, when you're talking about Mueller's mandate, kind of the heartland of this whole thing, right, which is whether Trump or anyone else in the campaign conspired with Russians, right? So on that, I think Mueller did the best job, the most comprehensive investigation that could be done here. And so to the extent that there were pieces here and there that he either handed off to other offices kind of proactively um, or they on their own kind of started looking at, you know, that may be the case, but I wouldn't expect any state or local prosecutor to suddenly burst out with charges that are kind of in the heartland of Mueller's mandate on the Russian interference. I think to the extent we see some of that stuff, it's going to be on these peripheral issues of, you know, violation, of course, of state law. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And so, you know, uh, as is, you know, I discussed earlier and we've just and I've discussed multiple times in this podcast, there's obviously many relate multiple related investigations that comprise what we think of as the Mueller investigation. There's counterintelligence piece, which I'm going to have Asha Rangappa on later talking about. But on the, even on the criminal side, there's obviously multiple different criminal uh, federal criminal investigations. There are some that are ongoing, uh, you know, and uh, some that, you know, have been spun off, for example, to your old office in the Southern District. There's obviously a, there are court proceedings that are that are ongoing with uh, Roger Stone, for example. Um, and then there is, as you point out, there's these some of these core issues related to Russia. You know, I don't know whether or not, you know, a lot of people talk about a potential conspiracy, but there's certainly even separate and apart from that, there's a number of, I'd say, related issues lying to Congress about Russia and, and so on. So just to break some of it down, one question that that Natasha raised that I think it would be is I'd love to get your take on is why did Mueller stop now when there seem to be some loose ends uh, along, you know, regarding some of these investigations that still haven't been tied up? Yeah, I think, you know, I've been thinking about that, too. And I think the answer is the loose ends that we know about, of course, there there might be more things that we don't. But the loose ends that we know about are things that have been subject to some sort of litigation, like Andrew Miller, who was uh, tied to Roger Stone, he refused to comply with his subpoena. They've been litigating that. And then, of course, the mystery grand jury matter, right? Uh, And then you have two cooperators who haven't been sentenced yet, Rick Gates and Michael Flynn. Uh, The sentencing of the cooperators is pretty easy. You hand that off and it gets done. The question is, when you have these, these folks who are refusing to comply with their subpoenas, you know, what do you do with that? And I think if you're Mueller and his team, at some point, if your work is otherwise done and you don't have reason to believe that these folks, when they finally are forced to comply, will have information that will change the closing of the case, like are they really going to bring forward evidence that changes their conclusions? Andrew Miller, we know, is, is more in the Roger Stone side of things, mm-hmm. so I, I think they figured you know, anything he gives is really more about that case. And they must have just concluded that if they're otherwise done, it's not worth it to drag this whole thing out and wait for the resolution of the mystery grand jury case, mm-hmm. you know, the corporation that is foreign-owned that, that refused to comply. I mean, that's what I think must have happened because, you know, think about how long these litigations can drag on. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously this is a matter of such public import that I think they ultimately just concluded not to wait for it. Now, what that means is that, you know, um, they're going to have a hard time, I think, continuing to press for that information. Um, you know, Andrew Miller might be one thing because of the Roger Stone connection. They may be able to continue to say we still need it. 
But if you're that mystery grand jury, uh, that corporation, you're like, well, listen, he, sh- you know, he shut down, he closed up shops, so surely that moots the, the need for our uh, documents and, and testimony mm-hmm. and, and whatever it is. So um, I think that must be it. He just uh, felt that it wasn't worth waiting for. Yeah, I do think that there is, you know, uh, you have to draw a line somewhere. In other words, there, there's there's an issue here where, and I'm in, I'm I suspect your experience was similar to mine in that when when I engaged in complicated white collar uh, investigations, they would last for years. There'd sometimes uh, be pieces of them that would have sort of spin off and take a life of their own and might last for years more. And given, as you point out, the public concern here, uh, you know, you could literally have a situation where Mueller uh, was supervising a fairly small piece of his original investigation while the entire world awaited what he had to say. And so it was in the public interest to get that report out there uh, and not let these loose ends um, drive the bus, so to speak. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, 22 months they've been working, which is an extraordinarily short amount of time for the amount of work that they did. Um, It's incredibly impressive, um, along with the fact that there were really no leaks out of special counsel's office. I mean, I think those two things are are amazing. Um, But I think that's right. Like, they just, they did it so quickly, so well, and, and presumably comprehensively. And, you know, why... Uh, kind of ruin some of that or, you know, drag it out unnecessarily. So I, I think that's right. So uh, one issue that I, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me that I'm trying to understand is why uh, Mueller did not push to have a interview of Trump. Uh, do you have any thoughts about that? You know, who knows? I mean, it was obviously such a fraught issue uh, it would have been very difficult, I think, to get it to happen. Uh, we don't know, of course, what the discussions were. We only know what Trump and Giuliani and their side uh, leaked and, and told the public. Uh, but they very well may have refused to do it, absent subpoena. And then you're litigating that matter for months and months and months up to the Supreme Court. So, you know, I just think at the end they decided that it wasn't worth it. Um, they got the written answers on some of what they were investigating, certainly the, the Russian interference piece from before the president took office. And it's not ideal, but they must have decided, I think, that they were willing to stop there and avoid this drag-out, you know, long litigation that would have commenced had they insisted on either a personal interview or really any uh, sworn answers from the president during the time period after he took office, because that's, of course, the time period in which he's uh, asserting, presumably asserting, we'll have to wait and see what happens, uh, but presumably asserting some executive privilege. Yeah, I have to say, to me, the question is, did they you know, put him in a position where his attorneys had to say in writing that they would take the fifth if he, if he issued a subpoena uh, or if he ultimately took the stand? I suspect not. Uh, and that, to me, is an interesting question. If this was another case, if this was, you know, mystery executive X from, you know, Y Corporation that I was investigating, I would pursue uh, an interview if I was, a, you know, still a federal prosecutor. Uh, and the only way I wouldn't uh, continue to pursue that interview was if I, you know, he was my target and I was ready to indict him anyway, uh, which is what it means to be a target uh, that you do intend to indict. Or uh, I, I had in writing from his attorney that he was going to take the fifth. 
Here, my suspicion is that it's something less than that, which is, I think, what you're suggesting, that uh, Mueller ended up making a calculation that he was not going to get the interview, and so it was not in the best interests of his investigation, and the it was not in the public interest to pursue that interview. Is that basically? Yeah, I think that's right. And, and you know, look, the president does get treated with more deference than your average citizen here, right? Um, so you know, while you and I would pursue more aggressively, like you say, a corporate executive, the president is, is getting a bit more deference here. And, you know, generally I, I think that's okay. He is the president. He has a country to run when you think about things like uh, taking his time and kind of taking up the, the uh, bandwidth of the president. Those things are important to consider. So what, what about Trump Jr. and Kushner? I'm getting a lot of questions about them. I, it, first of all, if I was their attorney, I would be very happy because they haven't been indicted, which means that I think as to core issues that Mueller was looking at to use, you know, I think the distinction you used earlier, for example, lying to Congress or lying on a disclosure form about foreign contacts, they can breathe easily. But there may be other things out there. But I, I don't uh, you know that the Southern District, for example, is looking at. But what one thing I wonder is. Uh, why weren't they uh, brought in for an interview? Do you have any thoughts on that? I'm getting questions about that from uh, listeners. Yeah, that's actually an excellent question because I agree with you that they should be breathing a sigh of relief, especially Don Jr., who you know reportedly told folks he actually expected to be indicted. If he were going to be indicted for false statements to Congress, it should have been by Mueller. You know, Mueller. You know, it was in the heartland of what Mueller was looking at. Um, Mueller had the venue over that. You know, other folks like SDNY don't have venue over congressional false statements. Uh, so I do think that they're breathing a sigh of relief. And the question that your listeners are, are answering is spot on. I mean, the reason that I would think that they were not brought in for interviews is because they were going to be charged. <laughs> and so, you know, now it appears that they're not being charged. So that kind of brings you back to, well, then why weren't they spoken to? So I, I don't know. I wish I had a, a good answer for that. But that, that really is a puzzle, I think. Yeah, that's one of the questions I suspect that if you and I were interviewing Robert Mueller, we would that would be near the top of our list. You should get him on the podcast. <laughs> I'll see what I can do. Uh, yeah. uh, I'm I'm I'll have, I'm I'm very happy though to have you. I'm I'm curious, you know, maybe to turn to some of these issues of disclosure because if I had to say break down the questions from listeners and I and I I I read all of your questions. Another big category is disclosure by bar. So just let's focus on the criminal side uh, of things for a moment. There are obviously there's classified material. I'll talk more about that with Asha, but, you know, that'll be probably more prominent in the counterintelligence side. But even putting that aside, there is a rule that prohibits the disclosure of information that's obtained uh, via grand jury subpoena, like, uh, for example, grand jury testimony or documents that were that were obtained via a grand jury subpoena. You know, how do you think that would impact, uh, Jennifer, the disclosure of portions of the report? Well, it, it's interesting because on its face, Rule 6E of uh, the Rules of Criminal Procedure, which governs grand jury information, is very strict. You know, you're really not supposed to disclose to basically anyone, grand jury materials, you know, you can disclose it to other government folks if it pertains to the prosecution of the federal case. Uh, but outside of a criminal matter, you know, once it's brought, of course, the grand jury stuff can come in once the case is brought, but it's not. It's very, very strict. So 
you know, I, I don't I don't see how they're going to be able to get around some of these things. Now, many, many people, I think, who spoke to the special counsel's office did so in, in interviews, right, not actually in the grand jury. And there may be some who did both, and so they might be able to rely on the the content of what was said in the interview and not what was said, you know, just in front of the grand jury. But I do think that is a restriction, and it's going to give Barr and company some leeway to exclude some of the information if that information was only disclosed to the grand jury in testimony. Yeah, I have to say I have heard some commentators uh, su- suggest otherwise, Jennifer. Like, for example, uh, Neil Katyal, who's been on this podcast multiple times, to, uh, more, I think a few times already, um, you know, wrote a po- an op-ed in the Washington Post uh, yesterday saying that everything uh, in the report can be disclosed. And I don't see under Rule 6E how that could be the case. Now, it's possible that they could go to a judge, for example, and get the... the um, authority to do it, or Congress could pass a law that would, you know, and I know there's a bipartisan bill out there uh, that would, um, you know, that would mandate that an entire special counsel report be released to the public. But absent some move by like that, it would seem to me that Rule 6E would, uh, to to uh, go along with what you said, I think you're right that it would, it would prohibit disclosure of a, a, a decent no- amount of information that might be in the report. Yeah, I mean, maybe Neil's just um, upset now that he didn't write that into the special counsel regs. (laughs) That very well may be the case. I just think it's important because I think there, you know, we all have a responsibility to make sure that the public is informed. And, you know, to the extent that there are obstacles to this going to the public, it's better to have that out there so people understand that the real issues that are being grappled with. And if the, if there really can, remains this bipartisan consensus that the full port report be released, um, which you know there appears to be, given that there was a unanimous vote in the House to release the full report, uh, then you know Congress can pass a law dealing with that. Uh, but we shouldn't pretend that uh, there aren't issues uh, related to that that are uh, important. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you, and I'd actually be really interested to hear what those folks are pointing to when they say that it can be released because 6E doesn't say that, special counsel regs don't say that, and so, you know, I don't know where they're getting that idea unless it is, like you say, kind of just looking for, uh, you know, a down-the-road fix like from, from Congress or a judge. Yes, which is not really suggested there. So in their in their pieces. So so um, now I think an, an issue that that folks have what they're concerned about, uh, I would say another big category of questions from listeners is how do I'll quote one verbatim. How will we know if Barr stonewalls the report uh, and other people are asking about what can Barr, you know, hold back and how can we trust Barr and know that he's uh, operating above board? What are the checks uh, on Barr, and, what, and how is Barr going to be, you know, reviewed and, and ensured that he's not holding anything back? So that's a very good question. And you know, look, Barr has said publicly that he wants to be transparent. He wants to release as much as he can to the public. But how do we hold him to that? The answer really is just Congress. Um, you know, the regulations say that he can. You know, he's the one who writes the report to Congress. He's, he's bound to tell Congress whether the Department of Justice overruled the special counsel in any way. He already has said that it did not. Um, but as for what the results of the special counsel's um, investigation are, 
Um, it's really up to him to decide what can go over and not. I mean, the report that he gets from Mueller is supposed to explain the prosecution and declination decisions. That also is kind of vague, but it should include the basis for their decision. So it should spell out enough of the evidence to let the reader know why they decided to prosecute in certain cases and why they decided to decline in other cases. Uh, but Barr gets to decide what he tells Congress, and he's really only required to uh, disclose the results. So that's going to be up to him. And I think the only real check on that is that Congress can, and I think probably will, subpoena the unredacted report. Um, and then we're going to have a court battle over it, I think, because you know Barr's presumably going to think hard about what he's keeping out. I mean, some of it, I know you're going to talk about the counter-intel side later, some of it will be classified, and that's kind right. of a different battle, and I presume that Congress actually wouldn't push too hard on, on some of those things. But as for this notion that they're going to refuse to disclose information that formed the basis of the, a declination decision in the case of, for example, the president, that's information that the public is going to want to know. And if they are holding that back because of the DOJ policy not to publish derogatory information about people who are uncharged, I, I think that's going to be a, a big battle. But that battle is going to happen between House Democrats and the Department of Justice and it's going to end up in court because ultimately I think they'll issue a subpoena, move to quash, and then you're going to fight it out. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, if I was thinking about the buckets of information here, I think the hardest one to deal with is classified information. In other words, if there are real sources and methods, uh, and Asha could talk more about that, I think there are potentially very good reasons to keep that from the public. Uh, issues regarding, for example, as you point, un point out, uncharged people, grand jury information, you know, things that were obtained via grand jury subpoena. There are, I think, strong arguments that um, the public uh, in this particular circumstance where there's such ex extraordinary public interest and, frankly, intense scrutiny of people who have not been charged, that it would be in everyone's interest for that to be released to the public. Uh, and that's really a, a decision that I think will ultimately, as you point out, there will be a battle over that. I, we might even see somebody reading parts of the report on the House floor, like Mike Ravel uh, famously did with the Pentagon Papers, uh, in order to um, you know, get that out to the public in a way that would uh, stymie any uh, potential court uh, battles. I, I think that could be, or we could have a subpoena to Mueller personally and asking him questions, having lawmakers asking him questions about underlying materials if, if lawmakers are, are uh, determined to get to that. Yeah, that's going to be fascinating. I mean, I, I think they might, depending on what Barr hands over um, this weekend and, and where we go, they may start issuing subpoenas like mad, you know, one to the Department of Justice, one to Mueller, maybe even to some of Mueller's uh, prose prosecution team, you know, who knows. But I, I think there may, there may be um, an influx of subpoenas coming, and uh, then the litigation will begin. But you know, unless somebody leaks it, or as you say, kind of uh, they get a hold of the redacted version and, and start reading from it, I think it's going to be a while before we learn uh, what's been redacted because, as you know, this uh, litigation takes time. And without a doubt, without a doubt. And along those lines, there's there has been a lot of discussion about executive privilege. One question that uh, listeners had was, how does um, how does that how does that play? How is that going to play out, particularly 
uh, when the uh, president might be a subject or you know a, a target, uh, depending on how you look at it, of this investigation? So it's interesting. I mean, executive privilege, as you know, um, it, it's hard to know the real contours of it because it hasn't been litigated nearly as much as kind of the other kind of major privilege we all deal with all the time, which is attorney-client privilege. So, you know, it's hard to know as you play this out exactly what would be deemed executive privilege and what wouldn't. One thing we do know is that it doesn't apply to things before the president is the president. So certainly the whole category of things that deal with the campaign's involvement with Russia in the time leading up to the election uh, wouldn't be covered anyway. So you don't need to worry about that side of things. So executive privilege really comes into play when you're thinking about the obstruction of justice investigation, right, whether the president fired Jim Comey in order to undermine the Russia investigation. That's where it really, really matters. And that one, honestly, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot more information that we don't know. The special counsel talked to a lot of people, and there were notes collected and, and that sort of thing. But we do know a number of things about it. And I don't know how you feel, Renato, but I – think I'm comfortable, you know, although I kind of took longer, I think, than some of our commentating colleagues. But, you know, I think there's enough out there in the public realm to say that the president obstructed justice. So that's almost, to me, the one area, putting aside the campaign finance case in SDNY, where I also think there's enough evidence to charge. But we almost have enough in the, or we probably do have enough in the public realm in and of itself and anything else they've collected is kind of gravy. So it may be that the executive privilege litigation and adjudication of all of that stuff isn't, isn't, isn't quite as important as it, as it could be because there's already so much information out there. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does, Jennifer. And let me just say, so I concluded in a piece in, that I wrote in Politico magazine over a year ago now, 14 months ago, that I believe that Mueller would find that uh, Trump obstructed justice. That was a big thing for me because a year prior I had told the New York Times I did, there wasn't enough evidence, and it took a while for me to come to that conclusion as well. And, you know, I may have arrived at that conclusion earlier than you, but I will say your caution and your thoughtfulness is a feature, not a bug. Uh, there has <laughs> been way too much wild speculation surrounding all of this. So uh, I and I really want to encourage all of our listeners to continue to remain grounded and listen to people who are careful like you. So I agree with you. I do think one thing that I don't understand here is, you know, on obstruction, I will be very surprised if there isn't a finding along those lines. Um, and, you know, that's something that I'm really looking to see. Um, I will say as to executive privilege, I don't have all of the answers on that, although I suspect that is the sort of thing to me that I think the, the administration's arguments, uh, just to, to because we're, we're short on time, they're fairly weak. One last question I did want to ask you before we go, Jennifer, is I noticed that Rob Kazami, the the man who is leading the SDNY investigation, uh, is leaving. Obviously, there could be personal reasons why that is the case. It did seem to me, though, if there was not a personal reason, that it's an it's interesting timing because it suggests to me that, um, you know, perhaps there, there isn't some more uh, more shoes to drop that he wants to be there for. Yeah, um He's, he is going. Audrey Strauss, who has been in the office, back in the office now for a bit as the council is, is sliding into that spot. So, you know, the good news is there is continuity there. So um, Audrey will kind of take over for Rob, but she's, she's been around for a while. 
doing all this stuff. So, you know, I, I don't think there's anything nefarious going on. I don't think he's been booted out. You know, I certainly haven't heard anything along those lines. Um, you know, a lot of people come back into the office in that kind of role for a specific amount of time. Um, you know, he left a lucrative job in the private sector, so he may have only committed to a certain amount of time, or as you say, there may be personal reasons there. So I really wouldn't read anything into it. Uh, and I do think the fact that Audrey Strauss is coming in, you know, it's not like, uh, you know, the administration has handpicked someone to come in and, and take up that mantle or anything like that, um, means that the office will continue along the same path that it's been on, you know, looking into everything that they can look into and, and bringing cases where they're warranted. Well, I, that 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 caution, I think, is is wise, and I think many many of many of your comments today have been wise. Thank you very much for joining us, Jennifer. It's been a real honor to have you on. Thanks, Renato. It was great. I hope to come back sometime. I would love that. Thank you. So now let's bring in Shan Wu. Uh, Shan is also a former federal prosecutor. He was in the uh, District of Columbia U.S. Attorney's Office. He's also a CNN legal analyst. I appear with him all the time, and I will be appearing with him shortly after this podcast. So welcome, Shan. Glad to have you on the podcast. Yeah, thank you. Happy to be on. (laughs) So I've got to ask you some of the the tough questions here that I have been uh, unable to answer uh, to my satisfaction and certainly some of the questions that I'm getting from listeners. So one question people have is, you know, now we got the Mueller investigation wrapping up. Why wasn't Trump interviewed? Do you know, you have any ideas? Yeah, that's a uh, very intriguing question. I think he was not interviewed because Mueller's people, Mueller himself, felt it was more trouble than was worth because that would have very much slowed things down. There would have been, I think, a big fight over trying to compel him, and I think that would have taken a long time. I think we can gleam a little bit from uh, the tea leaves right now that Mueller was very, very focused uh, on keeping the mission narrow and on target, and I think they may have felt that that just would have been a perhaps – year-long sideshow going up to the Supreme Court trying to compel him to come talk. Yeah, I, I think that's probably the best that we can uh, you know glean at this point based on what we know. Uh, it's interesting you, me, and Jennifer Rogers, I think all have the same view on that. I'm curious, one thing that perplexed us even more, though, is what about um, why weren't Trump Jr. and Kushner uh, interviewed? Any Any thoughts there? Yeah, that's that is very puzzling. I mean, I probably the three of us would think the same thing that usually you will not interview the people that are most at risk that you consider to be targets because you're working the edges and will just indict them. So I don't really know the answer to that. Uh, two possibilities: one, whatever evidence we are not seeing really indicated that they were not subjects or targets, and they were pretty much in the clear. The other possibility is that they are still uh, in jeopardy, and it's really a, a handoff situation to some other office. I mean, I know that we've been hearing uh, definitely no more indictments from the special counsel, uh, but I don't mean to parse it too much like a lawyer, but that doesn't mean that some other uh, United States attorney's office couldn't indict. So do you think that – so just to be clear, because this is a, a view that I didn't have, I, you believe that there's some – real possibility that uh, from the core of what Mueller's investigation is that, for example, that your old office in the District of Columbia might uh, end up indicting somebody else? 
I think so. I guess the, the the interpretive point would be, was it something that was core to Mueller, which we would tend to think they would have held on to and seen it through to the end? And I guess we have an example here to think about of Roger Stone, which certainly could go right to the core of it if he was like the missing link you know, to, to WikiLeaks and to the Russians, or, or maybe it's nothing more than a false statements prosecution that they've handed off. But I think that's an example of them handing off something that at least had the potential to have some of the core mission aspect of it. So I do think it's possible that, that they could hand something like that off. I mean, why hand certain things off versus keep it? That's hard to know without knowing what they knew. Yeah, I have to say, um, very hard to know. Uh, but, I, you know, I think everybody's trying to get some guidance from us because a lot of people out there are, are trying to understand, does this mean that, it, you know, that all of this work that Mueller had been doing is over or is there a lot more to come? And it is confusing. And I can see why members of the public um, are trying to struggle to understand this, because if the three if the three of us I can't, uh, you know, definitively make a statement on us, that, that says something. Right. Um, so oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I, I do wonder, um, you know, one thing that people are trying to get um, a handle on is, what what are we going to be able to see and when you know uh, is would you agree that that i think there's issues regarding for example we talked earlier in the podcast about 6e about grand jury material do you think that will um you know prevent the disclosure of certain information unless there's an you know some sort of you know law passed or some other action yes i, I do I, I think the 6e uh prohibition is going to hurt what the public can easily see. Uh, they'd have to get a court order to do that. I don't see that uh, Barr would be very motivated to, to seek that court order. I think also, of course, there's the whole issue with you know, how much of this is rooted in counterintelligence, and therefore there's going to be a fair amount of classified information as well. So I think when you add to that the fact that there appear to still be some ongoing investigations as well, I think uh, it's going to be a pretty uh, trickling out kind of situation. I mean, the whole I mean, I was always skeptical of the idea that some big bound report was going to come out. So I think that's right. I, I will say, you know, one question that uh, Natasha Bertrand posed at the very beginning of her podcast was whether or not we would have extensive factual findings or whether this would be a more streamlined report that would just talk about prosecutorial decisions. I've always thought it was going to be closer to the latter. In other words, it was going to have less information rather than more. Um, there are some clues potentially in Barr's letter that suggest that maybe there's some more information. I, what is your take on that? Uh, I think that the actual document given to Barr is probably a pretty comprehensive piece of work that's done very linearly, simply tracing the history, everything that they saw and did. It's pretty, pretty voluminous in, in terms of attachments and references. And so I think the big question to me, what's really interesting is whether or not it would contain uh, any of the kind of thoughts and analyses as to why they did things. I mean, when we used to write what we call prosecution memos or declination memos, if we were not going to charge we actually did put that into it because it was not going to be for public consumption. We'd explain, you know, evidence is looking pretty strong here, but I was concerned about this. My judgment is blank. That would be very, very revealing, and I just don't know whether Mueller would be that uh, revealing in wanting to put something like that because he's got to have 
in putting this report together with the strong knowledge that it's likely going to be seen at some point and people will be fighting tooth and nail trying to see it. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think that colors everything here. In other words, you know, I, I think that Barr has to know that the House of Representatives voted 420 to zero, that they wanted the full port release, et cetera. So the, the, everyone knows in the backdrop that everyone wants to see this thing. Yeah, I'm curious. Um, I'm curious, Shan. You know, there's there's continues to be a lot of speculation about whether things are going to be hidden or stonewalled. How do you see um, things playing out in terms of the the battle over disclosure of the report? Uh, I think that battle is going to end up uh, being helped by Barr. I mean, I, I think that Barr does not want to heavily disclose negative information. I, I think that's his leaning. Um, but I think he has many legitimate rationales for that. There's the one we always hear about where the Justice Department does not want to disparage people if they're not indicted. I also think that he's got all the things we just talked about, the 6C material and the classified material. So I think the disclosure battles are going to more weigh in his favor. Uh, I think at the end of the day, uh, Congress might be able to get some closed doors hearings, uh, get some testimony from people, but I think there's he has so many shields that he can raise. Just take executive uh, privilege for one, which could you know tie things up in the courts for many many months. I think it's just going to be a real uphill battle. I think it's the right thing to do to press for it, absolutely, and I think they should go ahead and subpoena people and have them testify, ask them the questions. But just from a really speaking as a legal analyst, I think there's a lot of legal shields that uh, the Justice Department and and the White House Counsel's Office can use. Yeah, I think so as well. Um, I think there'll be quite a battle uh, in the weeks to come, maybe months to come, if this ends up taking, you know, going into the courts. Shan, thank you for for joining us. I I will tell you, it's a pleasure to to kind of sit down and have this conversation as opposed to just being next to you on uh, the boxes on on CNN (laughs) on TV. Thank you so much. Looking forward to speaking with you again soon. Yeah, it's my my pleasure. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. All right, so now let me bring in our final guest today, uh, somebody who needs no introduction, uh, not just because she is a former uh, FBI counterintelligence agent, a CNN legal analyst, uh, so somebody that you know quite well, but she's also a very frequent guest uh, on this podcast and somebody I think is very, very smart and has, offers a great insight. That's Asha Rangappa. Thank you for joining us again, Asha. Thank you for having me. So, Asha, um, this entire podcast, we've been talking about the, the you know, release of the, the uh, excuse me, the transmission of the Mueller report to Attorney General Barr. And I, you know, have, have repeatedly said throughout this entire podcast that, you know, there's a big portion of this investigation, and perhaps the most important part of the, the overall investigation, uh, which is really a, a kind of a group of, of related investigations, is this the counterintelligence investigation and I wanted, as a starting point, to ask you, does this mean that the counterintelligence investigation into um, the Russian attack on our elections, uh, it, is that now complete? So I think that we need to go back to Mueller's appointment letter. You know, his mandate was to investigate any links or coordination between the Trump campaign and Russia in the 2016 election. So it is possible that the findings of what Russia did 
um, in that time frame with those people is complete. In other words, that they have, you know, used all of their intelligence means to uncover that story, if there is one. Um, but typically counterintelligence investigations kind of, they don't end, you know, unless the target that they are looking at no longer poses a threat. So, you know, if, for example, um, part of one of their investigations is on, say, a Russian intelligence officer who's still in the States, um, or say, and they have an investigation on him, that could be ongoing, though intelligence that they uncovered in the course of that investigation that is relevant to Mueller's report could be in his findings. That's that's how I would interpret it. I mean, and there could be sub-counterintelligence cases that, that are closed. But, um, you know, what, what I think is the big takeaway is what did he find out about that particular part of his mandate and how much of it is in the report and will anybody see it? Big questions. And I'm going to be asking you all of them. Uh, yes. So just to draw, to, to get this uh, tease out what you just said for a minute, you talked about sort of these, you know, that essentially there may be some loose ends that need to be wrapped up. There may be some pieces of things that may continue into the future. You know, we've talked about that previously uh, in, in this episode uh, re relating to the criminal piece. But your point is on the counterintelligence side, that may be the case as well. But as to his core mandate, uh, you think that that is completed. Is that right? Yes. And I mean, I'm just saying, like, you know, we keep hearing um, Christopher Ray and Rod Rosenstein saying, you know, Russia continues its activities and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, intelligence, you know, its interference activities they are planning to do this in 2020. So, I mean, I just don't think like, you know, the broader investigation, um, you know, our monitoring of what Russia is doing um, has stopped. You know, it, that's not over. And I think that is really important for listeners to know. Um, it's not just 2016, but it is possible that what he has found out about what they did with the Trump campaign um, is over and he's able to report on that. Right. So I think that makes I think that is important for people to know. But just to be clear, there have been some people saying, oh, well, Mueller's just phase one. There's phase two and beyond of what Mueller is doing. Um, you don't think that that is accurate? Yeah, I don't really understand that part. I mean, I I get that there's, you know, there are some people who believe that there could be things that have been um, kicked back to DOJ uh, or to other U.S. attorney's offices um, or evidence could be passed to the states. I mean, I think that is all possible um, on the criminal front. Um, I think that with a with the counterintelligence side, I don't see much of a phase two unless Congress looks at it and decides that there is a serious national security issue that they now need to either investigate further through their committees or if it's, you know, um, bad enough that they want to take action to remove the president of the United States. I mean, there's no, there's really no phase two to the counterintelligence. Like it is what it is, you know? Yeah. I think that that makes a lot of sense to me, but you're somebody who has more experience in counterintelligence. So I, I wa definitely wanted to get your view on that because I think it's important. I, I, one thing I want to do is clear up misunderstandings that people have. And that that's mm -hmm. why I ask you this, because I think it's important. People um, are so, being unclear. I mean, to give you an example, like let's, say that in the course of this investigation, they 
you know, and this is completely hypothetical. I have no idea what's in the report. But let's say that in the course of the investigation that Mueller discovered that um, that Trump could be compromised in a number of ways, that, you know, he may have engaged in shady business dealings in Russia or done things that are personally embarrassing to him or that he just has like a great love of Vladimir Putin and wants to please him at all costs. You know, I don't know that any of these things could ne- would necessarily be a crime, um, but they could present a national security concern. Um, and, you know, it, they could find that that is somehow playing some role or maybe on the Russian side, they're exploiting this or whatever. But I mean, that's not something that would necessarily see the inside of a courtroom. It wouldn't be a crime, but it would be something that I think would be of concern. Um, if you have someone sitting in the Oval Office who may uh, be, you know, under foreign influence, um, and that would be something that you would want Congress to know. So that's kind of an example, like a very, you know, clear-cut example of of where I think the gray area of counterintelligence could fall and why it's still important for Congress. I think that's great. It's good. I think that helped me understand it. And uh, now I, I, one thing I, I do want to talk to you about is is disclosure of the report. So we've been talking about this throughout the entire podcast and the way we've been focusing more on the criminal side of things. And I think the hardest issue, that Asha, is really on the counterintelligence side. In other words, that, um, for example, there's classified information. There might be information about sources and methods that would be contained within the report. And people who are calling for release of the entire report would, you know, by that, by that, uh, if if you take that literally, would mean also the release of classified information. Uh, what do you? How do you think that's going to play out? And how do you think it should play out? Yeah, I think that's going to be a real problem. So I think number one, there's a question of just the regs, right? So the regs really contemplate a criminal report. Um, It talks about uh, prosecutions and declinations. Um, It's not really about spelling out some kind of narrative of a national security threat, which is what a a counterintelligence investigation would be about. I don't know that it precludes it. Neil Katyal, who has written the regs, uh, insists that it could be very robust. So, you know, maybe it's in there. But then I think the second question is, what do you do with um, all of that sensitive information? Part of the reason that counterintelligence cases don't end up inside a courtroom is because the Department of Justice does not want to reveal what it has found out. Um, it does a, it, it would then have to disclose sources and methods, put people in danger. Um, it could dry up uh, avenues where they're get, they're continuing to get information that they don't want to dry up. Um, and I think that that is the... Uh, risk here. I mean, it was the same risk when Devin Nunes was trying to make that uh, Carter Page FISA um, to declassify that. So you you have that risk. Um, I think that there's probably a way that members of Congress would be able to see it, I, I assume, since they have clearances and stuff. But I don't see how that would very easily could just be like unredacted and given to the public. Yeah, I, I, I don't think it should be either, because like I said, and again, this is the important piece, much of this is probably ongoing just from the bigger mm-hmm. Russia perspective, and they cannot afford to, I mean, we know what Putin does when he discovers that people are ratting him out, like it doesn't look good. I mean, it's not good for them. Um, they end up with <laughs> polonium tea. So, you know, um, there there are a lot of uh, stakes involved in terms of ongoing counterintelligence investigations, I would think. 
um, when it comes to Russia that they would want to um, risk exposing. That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, ultimately the purpose of having an investigation is to, you know, move forward the public interest. And it's not in the public interest, our national security interest, to expose our secrets and, um, you know, the the sources that are helping us uh, defend our nation. So I I will say the way that it would seem to me that that should play out would be that um, Democratic leaders and Republican leaders in the House and Senate um, would have access to some of that information. People like Adam Schiff, for example, the head of the House mm-hmm. uh, uh, for uh, the House Select Committee on Intelligence, and they could tell uh, the public, along with you know, both in a bipartisan way, that there are certain portions of this that we're not releasing, but we've looked at it and we think that that's appropriate and it's to protect our national security interests. And everyone in a bipartisan way can agree on that. That's the way it sh- I think, in an ideal way, that would work out. I don't know whether that will happen in practice. Yes, I think that that's right. Um, you know, and they managed to do this with the 9-11 Commission, right? I mean, that was, you know, that also involved a lot of uh, sensitive methods and sources um, to try to understand what was going on and, and with Al-Qaeda and all of that stuff. But they were able to provide a report for the public. So um, it can be done. I think that that was much less politicized, obviously, than um, this case is. So, but I think that is where the heart of the story, I think what people are looking for and what they want to understand is really the counterintelligence story, not, and it doesn't lie in the criminal charges. Um, And I think that that is going to be the hardest to really make transparent. Yeah, I will say, I think that that's right. Uh, I will say, yeah, you you mentioned Neil Katyal earlier. I, uh, as a lawyer, I don't see any, I, I don't understand how he could reach those conclusions uh, to be very frank with you, they don't. They, it seems to me Rule 60 on the criminal side, and there's certainly issues about classified information that would prohibit that. I think that, you know, one thing that is interesting is, you know, there will be some pressure to declassify information. One of our listeners asked, uh, I think, a, a smart question. You know, other than the president, who else has the authority to declassify redacted portions of the report or underlying materials? Um, that's a good question. I mean, there are, you know, there are internal processes where uh, things can get declassified. I mean, when when you use, uh, say, material you've obtained in a FISA and it, you end up going, you decide to open a criminal case. I mean, there is a whole, you know, me- mechanism for kind of getting that into a courtroom where you can hopefully still protect, you know, if if there's any other things that you need to protect. Um, So I'm assuming that that could be done. I think that the question is going to be that if DOJ doesn't want to declassify it, then it kind of becomes the FISA situation with the Nunes issue, where then it becomes up to the president. Yeah, uh, I think that would be interesting. There'd be all these political uh, pressures at work there that you know are probably beyond our core expertise, but you could imagine quite a fight over that uh, if there is a uh, a declassification battle. Uh, ironically, it's the sort of thing where I I think that politically uh, uh, Trump and and his uh, supporters might be better off with fuller transparency, and perhaps that if that is the case, uh, what you may end up having is a political deal that's struck uh, that allows for classified information that probably would not be it would be best off not disclosed being disclosed simply to show the world that there's nothing uh, there that would harm uh, the president. 
Yeah. So you think that that declassifying it would be beneficial to the president? Well, I think of certain information, for instance, you could imagine that there will be a lot of people, if anything is redacted, are going to assume the worst. And I've seen that with court filings like Flynn is cooperating and there's, you know, four paragraphs redacted and everyone assumes that that's like the worst possible thing for for Trump. And we don't know that. I mean, it turns out it probably is this this investigation in the Eastern District of Virginia um, that, you know, uh, you know, regarding somebody who isn't, uh, you know, a pu- uh, wasn't a public figure, really. So, you know, w- I just think that if there's even, you know, if there's a fight over a paragraph or a sentence or or so on, that, you know, if if I was a lawyer on the other side uh, of it, like if I was instead of commenting here, if I'm like a participant, uh, you know, f- you know, I- advising Bill Barr or uh, something like that, I would say we might be better off just trying to get the administration to declassify the sentence so we don't have a lot of wrangling over, you know, this issue from a political perspective. Now, obviously, you and I already talked about what I think that what might be in the national interest in having, you know, all, both parties come together and so on. But in a partisan battle, they might be better off just disclosing, even if it if it hurts a source. Yeah, um, I I don't know how that's going to play out. I mean, I feel like from, you know, the whole Carter FISA fiasco, I don't think that this will end up. I mean, if, if, if you were to lay bare all of those redacted, you know, uh, blocks, I don't think that it would look good for uh, I'm not sure about the president directly, but definitely for what the campaign was up to. And I think the thing right now is that you have a lot of dots um, and they're all there. And I think Mueller knows how they're all connected. We know that uh, Russian GRU hacked into the DNC server. We know that they were working with WikiLeaks to release it. We know that WikiLeaks was in indirect contact with Roger Stone, who was a part of the campaign. Um, we know that these two people, Manafort and Carter Page, went into the campaign, um, both of whom had prior contacts with Russian intelligence. Um, we know that Carter Page was under FISA surveillance after he left, and the FBI was getting positive foreign intelligence information because we know that the FISA kept continuing to be renewed. So it's like, what what is the through thread in all of this um, that they that allowed it to kind of continue going, that connects all of these dots that we have seen little blips of, this polling data that's being shared, the peace plan, like all of this stuff that we've he- heard blips of. I think that there needs to be a narrative, whether or not it includes enough like actual classified information, but some level of detail that actually weaves together a story. Because right now, I don't think the American public is capable of putting all of that together, even though it's sort of there right now. Yeah, um, I, I agree with that. I mean, partly it's because there's so much information that's being deluged uh, that yes. it's hard to put it all together. Another thing is, I think that there have been runaway expectations, uh, in partly through, I think, analysts and commentators Talking about you know conflating the counterintelligence and the criminal side of things, and having these expectations that there'd be these grand conspiracy charges yes. and all of that, which I think set the bar way too high for a counterintelligence investigation. No, which is, totally. Yeah, which is really looking for at, at whether or not there's a danger to our national security. Exactly. I mean, you know, I mean, if the story is, you know, Russia used. Uh, basically a source that they've developed and were, you know, had gotten on their financial hook um, and was in, you know, 
debt to a Russian oligarch to basically go into the Russian to go into the Trump campaign, start to, you know, use that campaign to help ease, you know, the platform on Ukraine um, to uh, pass polling data so that they could, you know, do their social media disinformation campaign. I mean, this is this is relevant. It doesn't involve Trump. You know, I mean, Manafort's going to jail, not for that. But I think we would want to know if they had been brazen enough to actually try to, like, infiltrate an active presidential campaign. Um, right now, it's become such a winners and losers thing that we've lost sight of the fact that that is, I mean, that is crazy for another country to try to do in our election. Regardless I, of what party it is. I, and I we've just agree. gotten so far from how outrageous that is um, and how we should be taking such a strong stance against this hostile foreign adversary. Um, you know, because, again, as you said, that we've we've the the focus is now on, like, is will there be a grand conspiracy indictment? I, I think that that's I think that's absolutely right. And, you know, it is my hope that we can have a, a coming out of this some nonpartisan uh, consensus is that we or consensus that we draw out of this that hopefully will I think move our country forward and allow us to focus on these issues in a way that doesn't become too politicized. Although I, obviously, uh, given what's happened, I don't get my hopes up too high. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us, Asha. You're amazing as always, and I'm looking no forward problem. to having you on again soon. Yes, thank you, and uh, thanks for putting together this podcast.